Hello, I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. I'll start with empathetic connection is the primary mechanism of all forms of healing, emotional healing. By which I mean it's not somebody giving you answers, telling you what to do, uh, providing any kind of consolation. Uh, it's not in somebody choosing wise spiritual words to say. In my experience, that has a far less significant role than the, sim the simple maintaining of proximity, staying with someone, attuning to them, which means locking eyes, paying attention, not having inner thoughts drift away, and um, empathy, which is based on mirroring. Mirroring is something you can't perform as something that has to be uh, essentially felt. Mirroring is the uh, ability to, in some small way, connect with the emotions that someone else is displaying and essentially repeat or echo them back in a much more, uh, in, the, in a way that feels uh, not performed or over-expressive, but also shows, not tells, but shows that you get it. When it starts out from the earliest days of our birth, the children, their core drive is not for food, not for liquid, not for warmth. The core drive of an infant is, and all mammals, is to connect. What Conrad Lorenz said, to find a adult for nurture, for protection, for meeting all of our needs. And that's the first parts of the brain that go online, searching for uh, essentially a face, another human being, a set of eyes to connect with, to be seen, to be held in the gaze of another. That is the core drive of a human being. Human beings are a social species. Our core drive is to attach. Now, if you think that attachment uh, is something uh, non-dharma, that's absolutely not the case. The Buddha never, ever, ever uh, denigrated attachment. He denigrated clinging. Clinging is the, the word upadana, which means to grasp onto something that is not always available for lasting peace of mind. But the Buddha said that finding safe people to rely upon is the foundation of all spiritual life. In the Upada Sutta, uh, Sambodhi, if someone asks you what is the prerequisite for any spiritual path, you should answer, one should have admirable close friends. This is the requisite of the spiritual path. He doesn't say meditation. He doesn't say going on retreats. 
he doesn't say reading the Dharma, he says connecting with wise spiritual friends. In the half sutta, when Ananda says, is it true that connecting with others is half of the spiritual path, the Buddha says, don't say that, it's the entirety, it's all of it. It's the foundation, it's the beginning, the middle, and the end of the path, it's connecting. In one sutta, the Buddha says, the people we hang out with, we begin to become like them. So the spiritual path is choosing other spiritual people like you are doing in this community. So human beings, going back to the early child's need to connect, is not just connecting for food, not just connecting for nourishment, for warmth, for addressing physiological distress when the child soils itself, but the child is most of all uh, seeking to have another figure what's called co-regulate its emotions. The child is going through all kinds of upheaval, discomfort, and essentially uh, feelings of overwhelm uh, after birth. And human beings, unlike other mammals, we do not we do not auto-regulate. We cannot go off, read a book, and calm down. We cannot, even though we love to meditate, we can't go off, meditate, and significantly process an emotion. Human beings process emotions collaboratively. This is not based on speculation. This is based on hard clinical neuropsychology, such as if you want to read about it, General Theory of Love by Thomas Lewis, Love 2.0 by the great psychologist Barbara Fredrickson, Affect Regulations Volume 1 and 2 by Alan Shore. I could go on. I like to read this stuff. <laughs> Human beings are co-regulating, not auto-regulating. We need to process emotions first by feeling, not by thinking them through, but feeling the sadness, the loss, the anger, the frustration, the despair, and then finding someone who we can report those emotions to, and those people, their sacred job is not to tell us what to do, or to console us, or to give us wise words, but to be a witness. That's what people see. They see just as they saw it originally from the parent or the, the caregiver, they seek to be seen. That's what we all need when we're distressed, lonely. So if we get that in childhood, if we get that empathetic attunement, proximity, and mirroring, then what happens is we develop what's called a secure base. A secure base is the feeling that there are people there that will help us process and help us regroup after frustrations. And if we have a secure base, Bowlby showed we actually want to explore and embrace opportunities and take risks and take on new challenges and we'll trust that relationships will work out. We won't go in jealous or envious or paranoid or based on any form of expectation of abandonment. But if and I certainly fall into this latter category. If you don't get reliable caregiving, my father was before he became a Buddhist, a 
let's just say a violent, uh, scary Russian uh, macho uh, alcoholic, and he would beat my mom in front of me as a child. He would do a lot of um, things that were physically uh, distressing to me. Not so much full-on beatings, but more dragging me out of bed in the middle of the night, screaming, uh, being a figure looming in my room, tearing things apart. Uh, so I uh, didn't have early on that feeling of a secure base, essentially with uh, my father. With my mother I had far more of a secure base, but in that, we, when we don't have that feeling where we can expect empathy, then the emotions that we see triggering the lack of empathy from the caregiver, we will learn to repress. And sometimes those repressive techniques to not feel, for my, I'll be more specific and concrete, with my father, any form of male behavior that wasn't macho was, uh, in my childhood, utterly shameful, and he would punish. So I had to repress any of the feelings of fear, overwhelm. I had to try to be as, I tried to have to, as little as a five or six year old, I had to try to imitate what I thought male behavior was, which at that age I didn't have a, really a fucking clue at all. But I was doing it to avoid the, the sudden volcanic eruptions, uh, literally having plates thrown at my head, being locked in bathrooms and stuff like that. So um, for a long time, because my father's anger uh, was so terrifying, I repressed my own anger, and I also had to repress my own fears. So when you have to repress that many core emotions, the solution is, of course, uh, finding uh, something that will help keep those uh, very core, natural, human, important states of being that have very important messages that help us to survive. So to repress them, at first I used fantasy and uh, comic books, and television, but eventually, around 12, I discovered alcohol and quickly after that drugs. And I had stayed that way until, for 22 years until I was 34 and I got uh, sober. So in that period of time, uh, I, as a result of that, I not only had an, a need to repress both feelings of uh, fear and security, but I also had a lasting hypervigilance. Some people are hypovigilant when they grow up in a caretaking environment or family system where there's not a lot of secure, reliable caregiving. They will tune out, and those people will generally wind up, uh, if you read uh, the wonderful book, uh, Addiction as Attachment Disorder, those people generally wind up using uh, substances like heroin, uh, opiates. Others, like myself, 
will be hypervigilant, which means always on guard, waiting for the next eruption, the next bad thing, the expectation that there's no lasting peace. And so for that, many of us will, some choose cocaine, stimulants to help stay alert and awake. I chose alcohol largely as a way to relax from the unending hypervigilance. The lasting effect of emotion suppression is conflict avoidance, risk aversion, poor self-integration. When we can't feel certain emotions, we have to systemically, unconsciously, immediately, uh, guided by right hemispheric compulsive behaviors, we have to get rid of them, then we don't integrate those feelings usefully into one's concept of self, who I am. And that's really, really disastrous. For example, not being able to feel my anger for so many years, I couldn't set boundaries with other people. You can't feel anger, you can't set boundaries. You let people walk all over you. It's just the way it is. If you can't feel fear, you won't be able to get out of abusive relationships. You'll just wind up with what's called fearful avoidant attachment. You'll just stick and settle with people who are abusive and you won't leave. So each emotion carries a vital message that's trying to tell us something that we need to survive given our own past experiences. Emotion integration, not emotion regulation, is the key for me of spiritual growth. But if I can't feel feelings, then I can't be around you when you feel the same feelings. If I can't integrate emotions into my own self-experience, then I cannot be around you when you have those emotional experiences that I find so threatening in myself. If I can't feel anger in myself, I will not be around men as I wasn't. I would always leave when I was around any man who had any anger uh, that they needed to express, either skillfully or unskillfully. So, Gottman says that unconsciously all relationships are maintained by scanning each other's faces and body language to see if their words match up with their core inner states of being. What that means is while I'm talking right now, your left hemisphere, is your left brain is listening to my words and trying to follow this unending blah blah of ideas. But your right hemisphere is reading my body language, hearing my tone of voice, looking at my facial expressions, my body language, my gestures, and you are, the fast circuits of your brain, as common says, are quickly tabulating and saying, okay, is this person expressing something that he means, or is this person just, you know, saying something just to pass the time, or is this person being authentic, or what? You are making very, very important emotional decisions. And when you don't feel that sense that somebody's words line up with their body language, their tone of voice, whether they're looking at you and maintaining contact, you will get a gut feeling that something's amiss with that person. You won't trust them. Your intuition will be, I don't know, I don't feel that comfortable, I don't know why. That's your right brain saying, nah, 
this person says everything's okay, but in the corner of their eyes, they're, they're showing the signs of deep sadness, disappointment. There's a hesitancy in their throat. Their shoulders are locked and tight upwards towards their ears. Clearly, they're under stress. They're not fine. And that, to do that right, to do that well, to essentially what's called neuroset, unconsciously read other people and come to a quick determination whether they're telling you the truth or not, whether they, there's something that needs to be explored, whether we need to go back in a, a counseling situation and say, okay, let's go back to that. We have to be able to actually feel those emotions ourselves. Neuroception, the, my ability to read you, to read your body language, your facial expressions, your tone of voice, is entirely dependent upon me being able to feel those same uh, experiences within. It's actually based on what's called mirror neurons. Empathy and emotional scanning is based on the ability to feel what the other person is expressing. And if I feel something different than what you're saying, like if you're trying to tell me that things are great with, the, you know, with this project, but my, I'm hearing and feeling unease, that's a vital message. And I can't know that emotionally if I'm constantly repressing my own unease. So this is why I think that it's so important with, when talking about addiction to not frame it just in terms of substances that are essentially mood changing uh, or change one's states of consciousness. Uh, for me, in 20, now going 24 years of sobriety, I'm constantly having to address the compulsive behaviors that are ingrained in our capitalist society as a way not to feel important vital emotions. And if I can't feel them, then when I was working with this young woman who recently died, uh, right up until Susanna's, literally a week and a half before she died, the confusion, the significant, both she was in a significant denial, but when the realization broke through, there was a lot of sadness. And if I couldn't be with that, then I would do the greatest injustice to her. I would either, as Gottman say, pull away. I would try to console. Oh, it'll be all right. We'll, you know, say something, which is extremely violent when somebody is simply seeking to be heard. There's no room in my work for giving nice platitudes, for saying things that sound spiritual. The entire work is, first of all, being an audience. And to be an audience is not just to listen, but is to feel and mirror back. If I'm, every time I feel lonely, I eat, which I've worked with a lot of people who do that. They eat because in their childhood, when they were lonely, uh, being fed, was the one time in their childhood where their parents paid attention to them. So people very often binge eat as a way to create the feeling of being loved and seen and connected with. If I do that, 
when I feel lonely, as a way to suppress feelings of disconnection, isolation, lack of, of uh, empathetic bonding in my life, then when somebody else expresses loneliness, I won't be able to be someone who can bear witness, be with them, mirror that emotion, help them really feel connected. Um, I want to read you something by one of my heroes. I probably forgot to put it in my notes, but Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk is the... If he's not the world's leading in, uh, uh, expert on trauma, he's got to be up there. He's certainly one of the most profound writers, and his book, The Body Keeps the Score, has been a kind of Bible for me. Uh, yeah, so this is a... This is a... I think instructive. Vanderkolk is working here with a woman who's been sexually abused throughout her childhood uh, and constantly blames herself for what happened. And he says, come on, you were just a little girl. It was your father's responsibility to maintain those boundaries. And then the woman looks at Bessel and says, you know, I know how important it is for you to be helpful, but when you make those kind of comments, I usually just thank you, because as an incest survivor, I was trained to take care of insecure men. <laughs> but after years of therapy, I trust you enough to let you know that those comments are stupid and they make me feel terrible. While it's true, I irrationally blame myself for everything bad that happens, but I am this way. I do blame myself. When you try to reassure me, when you try to make me more rational, I feel even more lonely and even more isolated. When you try to reassure me, when you try to make me more rational, I feel even more lonely and isolated. When I go into the toughest work with abuse survivors, I often reread that. And the idea is I have to be willing to feel and stay with, but not try to in any way console or try to create the verbiage that will get rid of the feelings. That idea that we need to hand, put a, a, you know, a hand on a shoulder or say something reassuring, while on the left hemispheric surface level, in our thoughts, it feels like, oh, I'm trying to be helpful. But on an emotional right brain level, what it is saying is, I don't want to hear this. I don't want to hear this. I want this to go away. So if I'm using shopping, which I have, I have far too many hoodies. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I, really, I, I, have, I probably have too many glasses. I definitely have far too many hoodies. I've got... Uh, I've got Probably too many Lululemon pants. I like them. I can work out in them and walk around. It's an advertisement for Lululemon. And it's awesome. <laughs> uh, but if I use shopping as a way to address feelings of lack of, of uh, feelings of uh, 
uh, power, influence, meaning, uh, times in my life where I've felt <coughs> frustrated with uh, uh, some facet of my work. If I use shopping as a way to deal with those feelings, then when somebody else expresses those feelings, I won't be able to stay with them. So, this work we're doing is not, um, it's not just about drugs and alcohol, far from it. It's from any systemic behavior that we immediately go to in a compulsive way, even when we don't realize that there's an underlying emotion that is present that we are trying to suppress. Uh, in my experience, the languaging shouldn't, or the idea shouldn't be around the two extremes of, okay, I've got to never shop ever again, or I should just continue shopping and just uh, investigate how it feels when I shop. I mean, that's two approaches that for me don't really work that well. I actually prefer the uh, approach that a wonderful teacher named Ajahn Sumedha, who uh, up until a few years ago was the head of uh, really the Theravadan uh, Western order. And uh, Sumedha was asked by a woman who had an, a, a compulsive need to eat donuts before she went to work, because she had a job she really despised, and she ate the donuts as a way to obviously, well, you know, the sugar raises dopamine, makes you feel more powerful, makes you feel more influential in the world. So she addressed her feelings of lack of meaning and purpose by uh, eating the donut. So um, Sumedho, she said to Sumedho, I came up with a great solution. I wanted to run this by you. I found that the best way for me to deal with it is to walk a different way to work. And Sumedho very kindly said, no, that won't work. You'll simply find something else that you'll use to suppress, to not be with, to not hold those necessary important emotions. If you don't feel your feelings of purposelessness and lack of meaning and lack of uh, uh, social value, then you won't take actions to address it. You won't get a new job. You'll just stay in the job hating it for the rest of your life. To have the power and the impetus to actually make a change in life, we have to feel the emotions that are telling us this sucks. So, anyway, Sumedho said, what I would like you to do is to go to the donut shop and to stand in front of the window, this must have looked a little odd, but hey, uh, and see what it feels like to want the donut, and first do it for a minute, and then go eat the donut and see what it feels like to not then have that feeling present. Then the next day do it for two minutes, and then for three minutes, and then for four minutes, each time seeing what it feels like wanting the donut and then seeing what the emotions that we are suppressing, the feelings, the state of being, the tight belly, the 
hollowness in the chest, if it's loneliness or grief, if it's fear, it's a tight belly, if it's stress, very often the shoulders are up here, if it's feelings of being disempowered or being abused, it might be a tightness in the throat. These are just subjective and everybody's body will be different. You know, just feel what's there, reconnect with the body, get the message that we're trying to avoid. And then when you get that message, and when you report it to another human being, then you can do the same work for somebody else. Right? So it's not about staying with and just letting things be as usual. It's not about just getting rid of because then we'll find another. It's about taking incrementally longer breaks before we engage in an addictive behavior, see what's there, <coughs> find someone, talk about it, write it out, what did I feel, that helps process, as we know from Pennebaker's work, and then do the, sh do buy the hoodie. Sounds good to me. Um, so I think I'm going to wrap it up to leave time for uh, questions. Finally, last of all, I'm sure you know all this, but I just thought from my own experience just to pay lip service, a couple of tools for staying with people who are going through uh, emotionally dysregulated experiences, uh, and I mean really hysterical, crying, uh, hyperventilation from fear, um, Extreme anger projected onto you that's deflected from other relationships in their life. All of it. Uh, one is relaxing the body constantly while you're with someone. The two things that I'm doing when I'm listening is one, the exteroception of hearing the words and taking in the body language, but there's always 25% or at least maybe more aware of my shoulders being relaxed, my exhalations being long and smooth. That's telling my <coughs> limbic structure, especially the amygdala, I'm safe, I'm okay, I don't have to become guarded, I don't have to pull away, I don't have to retreat into fantasy or thought, I don't have to become impatient. If my body is relaxed, then I will be relaxed and I can stay present with pretty much anything. Two, naming what's present. That is a technique that I've used pretty much everywhere, which is what I'm hearing is sadness, fear, loneliness, anger. That's a form of mirroring. Am I right? Does that sound right? Or am I wrong? What do you, how does, am I close? Generally, in my experience, people generally just don't have one significant emotion in any uh, profound event in life. There's multiple emotions. Fear with sadness or anger or even a sense of relief sometimes. So, uh, finally, I highly recommend uh, at the end of any session with anyone who's going through um, distress or any emotionally resonant situation to take some time, five minutes at the very least, just go somewhere, 
find all the emotions that have built up, because if you're doing the work of empathy, you will have taken on another person's state of being. Find it, be with it for a moment, and then start to gently, gently relieve by, again, softening the shoulders. I do one in-breath, I pull up my shoulders, I breathe out, I relax. I take another in-breath, I tuck in my belly, I breathe out, I relax my belly. I do one where I squinch my face, then I breathe out, I relax my face. Then I do long exhalations while I visualize someone who I associate with peace and uh, calmness or patience. And essentially what I'm doing is I'm gently allowing the emotions to subside. To subside. Uh, if I don't do that, I become exhausted very quickly. I can't do the amount of... I generally meet with four or five people every day. It's not an overwhelming uh, amount. But if I don't do that between each person, I wind up becoming what Gottman calls stonewalling. I pull away. I start to emotionally not take it in, I'm no longer mirroring, I'm no longer present, I'm no longer being a witness. So, that's it. I hope we got something worthwhile. And, uh,